let me come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, for many of us, our lives and minds are crowded with many distractions and pressing concerns. Uh, help our minds to be calm now so that we can focus on your word. Uh, help me to preach it faithfully, to apply it thoughtfully in the light of Christ. Please help all of us to have hearts that are ready to receive your word by faith. Uh, may there be some who hear this word and are saved by it. May there be many who are changed by it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, most of us, I think, tend to live by the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, good things usually have to be worked or paid for by us in some way. If you want to land a good job, you usually have to go through the a hard work of training or study to get there. If you want to drive a reliable car, you usually have to be willing to part with thousands or at least hundreds of dollars. Most of us live our lives with the understanding that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And while I think this is generally a helpful view of things, it may mean that on the rare moment when we do actually come across something that is really good and really free we might actually miss it. Uh, in Christianity Explored, one of the videos that we show uh, speaks about an experiment that was conducted by a London newspaper. Uh, they got a person to stand outside Oxford Circuit, uh, Circus Tube Station offering people a leaflet. On the leaflet was the, offer of free, uh, was the free offer of five pounds. All he had to do was bring the leaflet back to the man and he would give you the cash right there on the spot. Masses of people passed this man, and in three hours, only 11 people returned for the money. Most didn't bother to take the leaflet, or if they did take it, they just simply refused to believe what was written on it. And so many missed out on a genuinely free and good gift. I think 2 Kings chapter 5 is telling us not to make the same mistake with God as we hear of him holding out the promise of a free and good gift. You see, Naaman in this passage, though initially uh, reluctant, was not left disappointed by the life-restoring gift he was given by God. And nor will you be disappointed if you take the time to stop, take note of, and humbly receive God's better gifts of life on offer to you now in Jesus. Now, for many of you, God's gift of life, eternal life, is something that you've already received. But that's okay because this passage serves as a good reminder to you of what it looks like to live in response to God's free gift of grace. Now, the way I've broken up the text is to look first at God's gracious gift and then the way Naaman responds to that, who receives the gift, and then the way Gehazi, Elisha's servant, responds. So let's first look at God's gracious gift in this chapter. Uh, God's gift in this story comes to a man named Naaman. So what do we know about Naaman? Well, verse 1 gives us a bit of an introductory profile uh, though he's a member of the enemy nation of Aram, his CV actually looks pretty good. You see it there in verse 1. 
Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, dot, dot, dot. Uh, Naaman, I think, is the kind of guy most Aussie men would like to be like. He's got power, status, connections. He's summed up as loved, courageous, successful. But the great man has a great problem. The end of verse 1 tells us, but he had leprosy. Now, because of COVID, we've all become quite familiar with the idea of contagious disease. and We're familiar with the idea of the social isolation that goes with that. And Naaman, I suspect, had also become familiar with the level of social isolation. The most common approach in ancient times uh, to this contagious disease uh, was containment. There wasn't a treatment, so all that could be done was contain those who were infectious. But unlike us, Naaman probably couldn't see a roadmap out of his incurable situation. He was a great man with a great problem. But you'll notice early on in this chapter that Naaman's problem actually gains the sympathy of a little no-name servant girl who had been taken, taken captive from Israel and served as Naaman's, uh, served Naaman's wife. In verse 3, this little girl says to Naaman's wife, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Uh, Naaman was from the pagan nation of Aram. In the words of the Apostle Paul, he was someone who was without hope and without God in this world. But through this little faithful member of God's covenant people, a word of true hope bursts into his life. This little girl basically tells him, go to our God, he'll heal you. Now, Naaman listens and does what many of us might do. He travels abroad in a desperate attempt to find someone who is willing to cure him of his disease. But I want you to notice the lengths to which Naaman goes to to increase his chances of success on this trip. You see, in verses 4 and 6 in your Bibles, you'll see that he uses his connections with the king of Aram to get him to write a letter to the king of Israel. And in verse 5, we read that he is willing to pay whatever it takes to get this healing. Verse 5, so Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, one Bible scholar notes that Naaman's loot here amounts to around 340 kilos of silver, 90 kilos of gold. And just for fun, I calculated how much that amount of precious metal would be worth in Australia right now. And it came to about $7.3 million. Now, the idea that Naaman, that he would simply be healed for free at this point, would have just been crazy to him. You see, Naaman, I think, I think he's looking at this and he thinks he knows the way of religion. There's no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to the gods or the prophets that serve them. 
the more you give, hopefully the more you get. And maybe that's been some of your experience with religion. The more you give, hopefully the more you get. Well, when Naaman arrives in Israel, he first goes to the king of Israel. But he's no help, is he? He just freaks out and he tears his robes and he thinks the whole thing's basically been uh, set up by the nation of Aram to pick a quarrel with the nation of Israel, verse 7. It's only when Elisha hears about the king of Israel's freak out that Naaman gets directed to the right place. Elisha messages the king of Israel and says, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Have Naaman come to me, Elisha says. And notice the reason. It's not to just help with international relations at this point, nor is it primarily just to heal Naaman of his disease. It's so that Naaman will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Elisha wants Naaman to come to a personal knowledge of the God he serves, of the true God. He wants him to see how much better and different the Lord is compared to all the false gods he would have known and been familiar with. He wants him to see that the true God won't play for pay, that the true God shows undeserved favour free of charge, that he's just compassionate. That's who he is. And see, look at how this is so dramatically depicted for us in in verse 9. Naaman goes to Elisha's house. He sort of pulls up at his front door with all his horses and chariots we read. That is, with all the silver and gold and clothing along with him. It's actually an amazing scene to kind of picture in your minds. The great man, the, the victorious, the successful man, stepping down off his chariot with the treasure trove of gold and silver and clothing in the background, He walks up to Elisha's front door. He's ready at that point for Elisha to step out to welcome him and hopefully exchange service for payment, just like every other prophet he's known. But you'll notice how Elisha doesn't quite respond in the way he expects. He doesn't even come out of his house, does he? Instead, he sends out a little messenger boy who simply says, go wash yourself in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Naaman had come ready to pay the earth for his healing. Elisha's servant is telling him, the Lord's given it to you for free, free of charge. You just head down to the Jordan River, dip yourself in there seven times and you'll be healed, Naaman. Now, we're going to come to Naaman's response in just a second, uh, but right now I just want to let that picture of God that we see at play in this first part of this passage sink in. See, the more I think about this chapter in 2 Kings, the more I think it challenges some of our common misconceptions about who God is. See, when you think about God, particularly in how he relates to you, what do you think? And maybe when you think God, you think distant or uninterested. 
perhaps concerned with the big events of the world, but not with individuals at a real personal level. But here in 2 Kings 5, we see a God who is interested and concerned for the deep need of an individual. Or maybe when you think about God, you think exclusive. There are some people he's prepared to show favour to, others that he isn't. And maybe you're unsure whether God would welcome into his people and show favour to someone from a different religion or someone who comes from the LGBTQ community. But here we see a God who goes out of his way to show grace to and welcome in a member of a pagan and enemy people group. Or maybe when you think God, you think transactional. If I do for God, he will do for me. If I be a better person or turn over a new leaf, then he'll accept me. But here we see a God who turns that all on its head. In the face of Naaman's status and achievement and personal wealth, God says, I'm actually not interested. My gift to you comes by grace. It can't be earned. It can't be bought. And in fact, later in verses 15 and 16, when Naaman has received his healing and he goes to give a gift in almost a a repayment or a return the favour type of scenario in verse 16, Elisha emphatically says, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And you see, it's the same with our cleansing from sin and the gift of eternal life that God offers to each person today through faith in Jesus. It comes freely by God's grace. As Paul says in in that verse on the screen, Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Does your view of God line up with the view that we see on display here in 2 Kings 5? You know who I think actually does have the right view of God in all of this? I actually think it's the little Israelite servant girl. See, do you think she would have risked speaking up if she thought God was uninterested or exclusive or transactional? I think we need to be like her and see God rightly as the one who is interested in the deep needs of people, welcoming of the outsider, and gracious in his salvation. Uh, This passage helps us all to have the right view of God, first and foremost, but it also helps us to have the right response to God and the great gift he offers us. Uh, Naaman's gift was getting cleansed from leprosy, as we'll see. God's gift today is getting cleansed from our sin and given eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. So we're going to look at now at the response of both Naaman and Gehazi to help us think through the right way to respond to God's gift to us in Jesus. Let's look at Naaman's response first. Uh, now you'll see that there's, initial, there's an initial negative response from Naaman. And not to the promise of healing, which verse 10 makes clear, but to the way in which that healing comes about. Trekking into the wilderness, going into the Jordan seven times. 
And you see that response come out in verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpa rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Uh, Pride has a way of making us turn our backs on uh, genuine help and good gifts. I remember in our first year of marriage, Ruth and I were camping in the bush in South Australia, and on the last day we attempted to drive out on the dirt track that we had come in on, but we got stuck, bogged. It had been raining that whole day, and the wheels of the ute simply wouldn't get any traction on that road. Now, Ruth's kind of initial suggestion was to call the local park ranger's office and ask for help, but I wasn't ready for that yet. See, I didn't want this ranger thinking that I was just another city slicker who had no clue what he was doing in the bush. And plus, I kind of had a little bit of a puffed-up view of myself, thinking that I could actually get us out of this situation. And so for the next hour or so, I was placing down branches under the wheels, trying to push the rear of the ute while I was teaching Ruth how to drive a manual at the same time. And all that happened, really, was I was just getting covered in mud, and we made no movement. Finally, Ruth convinced me to eat humble pie, and we called the ranger. He came, and without any eye rolling, he gladly towed us out. Instead of spending the night in the cabin of our ute, out in the bush, out in the cold, we spent it in a comfortable hotel. See, the ranger's help was always there, The question was whether or not I'd actually be humble enough to accept it. Pride can be the worst enemy of genuine help, but humility can be its greatest friend. And Naaman discovers this, I think. It was pride that led him to turn away in anger. He thought he was worth more than a messenger boy on the front lawn and a dirty river in the middle of nowhere. But it was his moment of humility that led him to turn back around. Now, for me, it was Ruth who got me over the line, but notice that for Naaman, it's his servants. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman acts in humility. He lets go of his sense of entitlement and simply puts his hope in what God asks of him. And it pays off. He went into that less than impressive river, riddled with leprosy, He comes out silky smooth. But notice that God's gift doesn't just change him outwardly, like a young boy, skin like a young boy. It changes him inwardly. This pagan commander of an enemy army suddenly turns and finds the living God. Verse 15, Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. 
Naaman is a saved man, and now he's a changed man. And you see that in verses 17 to 18. He asks if he can take some Israelite soil back home to Aram, and why? Because your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. In the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Naaman had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. But there's something that unsettles Naaman as he sort of reflects on his future back in Aram. And you see it in verse 18. He says this to Elisha, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down also, when I bow down to the, in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. So what's going on here? Uh, is Naaman kind of compromising a little bit on his faith, his new faith? Does this give us a green light to get away with a few compromises of our own that we might like to enjoy? Well, no, this isn't a picture of compromise but of commitment. It's because Naaman is so committed to the Lord that his conscience is so sensitive to this particular part of his job description. That's why Elisha doesn't condemn him but actually says, go in peace. Naaman humbled himself before God and received the good gift of healing, but he actually received the better gift of a relationship with the true and living God who he had never known before. Uh, I wonder if you uh, I wonder if you know that good and life-changing gift of a relationship with God. I wonder if you could say that you know the eternal life that God offers as part of that gift today through faith in Jesus. If you don't, please don't pass it by like you might a leaflet outside a train station. God's gift is good. It's true, but like Naaman, you can't claim it unless you're willing to humble yourself. You see, he had to accept the means of a less than impressive river. You have to accept the means of a crucified saviour on a cross. That's how God's gift comes to you, through the death of Jesus in your place. You see, the cross requires us to accept God's gift of life, forgiveness with humility, for it tells us that we're not as impressive as we think, but sinners deserving that death. It tells us that the way to be cleansed of sin and to be saved doesn't come from our good works, but by Jesus, who had to die for us in our place. Our gift of life comes to us free because Jesus paid the price. Uh, In Luke 14, Jesus tells us that all all those who exalt themselves will be humbled but all those who humble themselves will be exalted, i.e. they'll be justified in God's sight, saved, brought into God's kingdom, given eternal life. Why? Because the humble cling to the cross. I almost missed out on a comfortable hotel because I was unwilling to humble myself and accept the park ranger's help 
Naaman in our passage almost missed out on God's good gift because he was initially unwilling to humble himself and accept God's means. Wouldn't it be such a shame if you actually did miss out on God's gift of eternal life simply because you were unwilling to accept what the cross says of you and your need for forgiveness? Now, you might need more time to kind of consider all this and the claims of Christianity on this point, and that's why I'd like to invite you to come along to our new Christianity Explored course that's starting on Tuesday night. We've already got a few people signed up who want to learn more about Christianity. Why not join them and we can learn together more about the claims of Jesus? Uh, Well, as we head towards the end, let's... Think about, lastly, the, the response of Gehazi, Elisha's servant. How does he respond to God's gift to Naaman? I think most of us, even Christians, struggle a bit with the idea of grace. Uh, so many things in life are transactional. You work, as I said, you get paid, you train, you get fit. Uh, many of us believe the model that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, I saw this a bit in play a couple of years ago. I may have mentioned this story before when I had mown the lawn of an elderly neighbour. And when she saw I had done that, she quickly run, ran over to my house where I was working in the front garden and it was clear that she was just absolutely struck with a sense of indebtedness. Uh, she came over to me with $5 in her hand And she said, you must take this. I thought you were just going to do my nature strip. You've done the whole lawn. It's too much work. You've done too much. Take the money. But I told her, look, it's fine. I was happy to do it. Actually, as a Christian, uh, I'm someone who's been shown grace by God in Jesus. So I'm happy to kind of reflect that grace to other people. I mean, even in a small way like this, it's, it's not a big deal. But I'll never forget her response to that remark. She said, I know that's your religion, love, but this is my religion. And with that, she held up the $5 in her hand and refused to take take no for an answer. I think there's a little bit of that kind of religion in all of us, actually, where we can be tempted to think that God relates to us not on the basis of grace, but of works. He gives only because, well, we've earned it or we've first given to him. And that's Gehazi's religion at the end of this passage, I think. He sees Naaman, that Aramean, as he calls him. He sees him get him something for nothing, and that annoys him. See, look at verse 19. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he bought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. Gehazi, I think, is a little like the older brother in Jesus' parable of the lost son in Luke 15. When the prodigal son returns to the father, you might remember the story, the father doesn't make him work to pay off the debt or earn his way back into his good graces. The father actually welcomes the son with open arms. 
And the older brother, who's there and kind of sees this grace on display to this undeserving other son, rumbles these words to his father. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Like the older brother, Gehazi can't see the immeasurable blessings he has in simply belonging to the household of God, the God who in verse 7 has the power over even death itself. All Gehazi sees is an undeserving Aramean not paying what he owes. But unlike the older brother in the parable, Gehazi takes it up a notch and he actually takes matters into his own hands. He chases after Naaman, tracks him down, falsely says that Elisha has sent him to get some goods for a couple of new visitors who have arrived, verse 22. He then takes two talents of silver and two sets of clothing from Naaman, verse 23, and hides them away for himself. Now, do you see the irony going on here in the last part of this text? Gehazi thinks Naaman is undeserving of God's free gift, but if anyone's showing themselves to be undeserving in this chapter, it's actually Gehazi. He shows himself to be a man who sees no issue with coveting, lying, and stealing, just to name a few of his sins. What does Gehazi teach us? Well, I think he teaches us that even those of us who have been in God's community for years, who have listened to God's word time and again, are still capable of great sin. We are still undeserving sinners who desperately need God's grace and forgiveness, just as much as the Aramean we so despise. Gehazi stopped believing that, but we must never stop believing that lest we fall into his sin. You see, when you mix a religion of works mindset with a puffed-up view of yourself, well, you're headed for trouble. You'll be inclined to say, well, I've done my time. I've been faithful in the church. I've served on rosters. Now you owe me, God. That's why I think, God, that you should overlook some of my little indulgences like the occasional sexual sin, because I think you owe me that. Or I'm entitled to take the occasional break from meeting with God's people, because I'm sure you'll agree, God, that I've, I've uh, had a pretty good strike rate for you most of the year. Or you might be led to think of others. Why should I share the gospel with my neighbour over here? He doesn't really deserve it. Well, maybe if he apologises for all the loud noises late at night, the loud music, the parking on my nature, maybe then if he apologises for them, maybe then I'll actually be prepared to share the gospel with him. See, a humble recognition that we are undeserving sinners keeps us from a Gehazi-like attitude. In fact, this helps us in two big ways. It makes us thankful for the abundant grace and gift of life that we've been shown in Jesus, but it moves us to empathetic love for sinners who we might otherwise show disdain for. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But Gehazi's sin also shows us the danger of refashioning God's message of grace into a message of works. Elisha had introduced Naaman to the God of abounding grace. 
you get healed free of charge. That's the kind of God you've come to know, Naaman. Gehazi comes in and he distorts that view. See, in asking Naaman for even just a few extra things, Gehazi is now presenting God like a kind of generous friend who will then call in favours. You know, well, I was very kind to you. Surely you could do this little thing for me. See, that's not called grace. That's called being in someone's debt. And that's why God, through his prophet Elisha, says to him in verse 26, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to be uh, to take money or accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? It's like God is saying to Gehazi in this moment, in which it's like God is saying to Gehazi, in this moment, in which I'm showing the glories of my free grace to Naaman, do you think this is the moment to be taking something from him? You've tarnished my actions. You've twisted who I am to this man. You've made me look like all those so-called gods out there who get paid off to do good things. You've done a wicked thing, Gehazi. And that's why he's so severely punished at the end of this, because he has messed with God's glory. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. It's no small thing to take God's free gift of grace and distort it by adding a conditions apply beside the word free. This was true with God's gift of healing to Naaman. It's true of God's free gift of salvation in Christ. Paul says this in one in Galatians 1.9, which I don't seem to have. He says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Gehazi did this and he came under God's curse. He was made as leprous as the one he had looked down on. I was emailed a YouTube link uh, recently which tried to make the case that taking the COVID vaccine would make you lose your salvation. I think it was a prime example of how we try to put uh, added extras onto God's free gift of grace to us in Jesus. You see, it can't just simply be God's grace through faith in Jesus that you are saved. It had to be God's grace plus vaccine status. But it could be other ways that the gospel is distorted. It's not simply God's grace by which you are saved. You also need to show that you can speak in tongues or be baptized or demonstrate a life of good works. To add anything to the free free grace that comes to us, in Christ is to rob God of the total glory that belongs to him and place some of it on ourselves. That message is wrong, that message does not save, and that message will bring bring judgment on those who continue to teach it. Most of us go through our lives living by the motto that there's no such thing as a free lunch. This motto came to mind when I received 
a text message on Thursday telling me to claim my free gift at this particular website. Well, tonight we have heard about the true God who extends to each of us an infinitely good and free gift in his son Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we are washed clean of our sin, cleansed and fit for eternal life with God. Don't dismiss God's gift as you would a text message like the one I received on Thursday. Believe it as the truth it is. Receive it with thanks. And like Naaman, know the joy of being saved and changed by the living God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to Naaman. Thank you for the way his story of cleansing directs us to the greater work of cleansing from sin that you do in us through Jesus' death on the cross. Help all of us to receive your gift of life with humble hearts, knowing that we have not merited it, but it's come solely on the basis of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.